You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Our world is full of mysteries. And I can give you many examples of that, but here's one. Take Stonehenge, for example. Uh, there are 52 stones weighing up to 25 tons each, purposely arranged in an outer and an inner ring. And there were more stones originally, but that's all we have left. And it's clear that this has been around for a long time. Ancient peoples set this up. But that's about all we know about it. Every other key question about this rock formation is unknown. Who were these people and when did they build this? How did they do that? How did they get these massive rocks without modern machinery to this place? Why did they set it up like this? What was its function? What was it used for? And there are all sorts of conspiracy theories, but the bottom line is we just don't know. All we're left with is what we see in front of us. It's really a mystery that will never be solved, handed down to us generation after generation. And Colossians 2, 8 through, 3, 8 through 23, contains an unsolved mystery. I don't know if you're into mystery fiction, but if you are, you should like this. The mystery revolves around the identity of the Colossian heresy. In other words, what was Paul preaching against in Colossians 2? What was this false teaching that threatened to disrupt the church? Who were its leading teachers? What was its main principles or key beliefs and there have been an abundance of suggestions, but the bottom line is we just don't really know. We're at a loss to know the specifics of this heresy. And yet, this heresy was the reason Paul wrote the letter of Colossians. So it has to be somewhat important. And when I began the study several months ago, I talked a little bit about this heresy. So let's kind of review this to get it back in our minds because we've arrived at this section in the text. Colossians 2, 8 through 23, give us 11 clues about the identity of this teaching that describe parts of it. And if we take those 11 clues and kind of distill it down to a few main points, we see four things. First, the Colossian heresy included some Jewish ideas. We'll see in verse 16 later on this month that Paul mentions Jewish food laws and Jewish holy days, Sabbaths, and things like that. So there's a Jewish flavor to this. To what extent, uh, we don't know. That's debated. But there is definitely a Jewish idea to it. Second, it practiced mystical spirituality. Now, if you want to sound really smart, walk around tomorrow at work and say, we learned about mystical spirituality at church yesterday. What does that mean? Okay, Mystical spirituality means that this teaching focused on spiritual experiences rather than having a body of truth like what we have in the scriptures, okay? Verse 18 talks about the worship of angels. It talks about pretending to be falsely humble. 2.23 refers to regulations as having an appearance of wisdom, as having a form of asceticism or disciplining the body. And so the regulations, as verse 22 says, that this teaching had, the rules that it had, seemed to be focused more on what was not or uh, what practices were and were not allowed. 
So it doesn't seem that it's got a really strong doctrinal element to it. It was more focused on how we live and on, on the feelings that we have. But yet, it had a philosoph- philosophical flavor to it. So th- there was a definite system. That there were certain beliefs that, that these people were teaching, but the emphasis was more on how it affected us and what we ought to do. The verse that we'll see today, Colossians 2.8 says, through philosophy and empty deceit. So whatever the, the heresy was, it had a system of teaching that was fairly comprehensive. It wasn't just this random thought that, that a bunch of people decided to chase. It, it was something that they could teach. So you put all this together, and I think the Colossian heresy was probably a syncretistic worldview. And I'm not alone in thinking that. What does the word syncretism mean? Syncretism is mixing different religions or philosophies together to create a new strain. And this is harder to deal with many times than a false religion because it incorporates bits and pieces from various places. It usually has an element of truth to it that makes it difficult to discern because we know the best way to make a lie convincing is to dress it in the truth's clothes. So this Colossian heresy seems to be a combination of Jewish influences, local folk paganism, and some elements of Christianity. But what I want to to draw us back to right away is that though we don't know the identity of this, we actually don't need to know the specifics. We see some of the same principles of this heresy in our world today. And the solution for the Colossians is the same solution for us. It's by exalting Christ, considering him our treasure above everything else, and serving him and remaining faithful to him. That was the solution. And what we have in scripture is what we need. To avoid spiritual error, we look to Christ because he alone can meet our spiritual needs. So with that in mind, it's a little bit of a lengthier introduction. Let's read the passage together. Let's start in verse 6. We're going to read through the entire section here to kind of get the big idea. All right? Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink 
or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. There's a lot in these verses. There's a lot going on here. And so at the beginning of our study into this section, I'm going to put the outline of it up on the screen. If you want to jot it down, you can. If you want to pull out your phone and take a picture of it, take a picture of that, not me, please. Okay, that's weird. But I want to walk through this so that we can grasp the flow of Paul's logic, okay? There are two major sections to it. You see it there on the outline, 8 through 15 and 16 through 23. The first section contains a sober warning. The second major section applies the warning. So there's teaching and then there's application. The warning in verses 8 through 15 has a a negative and a positive side. Don't do this, but do this. The negative side in verse 8 commands us to beware of other teachings that are not after Christ. So whatever this teaching was, it claimed to have spiritual flourishing apart from Jesus. The positive side of the warning comes in verses 9 through 15. Be on your guard to remain rooted and built up and established in Christ just as you were taught. In verse 10, Paul writes, you are complete in him. And this is the key implication for believers. You are complete in Jesus. Christ alone is the source of spiritual flourishing. And Paul proves that in two ways. He says in verses 9 through 10 that you are complete in Jesus and therefore he is sufficient for you. He is all that you need. Verses 11 through 15 talk about Jesus is supreme. He's the greatest there ever has been. When Jesus died and rose again, he conquered sin and death, defeated the powers of darkness, liberated us and forgave us of our sins. And so by your relationship with him, you are complete. There is no work left to be done. Then in verses 16 through 23, Paul applies these grand truths to daily life. And he has three main ideas here, all in the form of negative statements. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone rob you, and don't submit to human regulations. And each week as we walk through this passage, I'll put this back up so that you can get a reference point for it. Now, before we dive into it, there is a fascinating connection to something we have studied earlier. And that's, that connection is found with verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. This is what we call the Christ hymn and there are several points, uh, several points of emphasis, several truths that Paul is making that appear there and show up here. And the way I like to think about it is texts like this are like 
interstate highways connecting one city to another. When we study a text of scripture, we're not just dropping on the map somewhere, studying it, going straight back up to our helicopters and zooming to the next one. We're driving from one location to the next. And there are truths and themes that appear throughout the scriptures. So what are the things that, that show up from this Christ hymn in 115 to 20 here in our section in chapter two? Well, Paul either adapted an existing hymn to fit the needs of the issues at Colossae, or, as I think, he wrote the hymn and wrote it so that the church at Colossae could sing truths that impacted their situation. One of the best ways to remember something is to sing about it. And why wouldn't Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have written a hymn and sent it to the church so that all of the things that they're struggling with are contained in that song? That's my opinion. But this hymn highlights Jesus' preeminence, his greatness. We've talked at length about that. And, and that position of Jesus cuts off the heresy at its knees. Here are a couple of ways that there's a connection. In verse 19 of chapter 1, Paul writes that Jesus is fully God. And actually, chapter 2, verse 9, it's almost the same exact verse. The false teaching elevated other powers above Jesus, but, but there is no one greater than him. There's no one greater than God. Therefore, Jesus alone should receive our worship. In addition, 116 claimed that Jesus created all things, including all forms of spiritual beings and powers. And if Jesus created all angels and powers, then he's greater than them. In chapter 2, verse 10, we see that Jesus is the head of all principality and power. No other power is superior to Jesus. If he conquered them all, verses 14 and 15, and he is the head over all, then why look to lesser things for spiritual satisfaction? 118 says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, describe and explain more the effects of Jesus' resurrection for us. We are raised with him and made alive with him spiritually. What other power can do that? What angel or demon can take dead people spiritually and make them alive? Only Jesus can do that. And then 118 says that Jesus is the head of the church. As the head, he gives life to the church, to life to his body. All the growth in the body is supplied by the head. And that's exactly what Paul says in 2.19. He calls believers to hold fast to your head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. How does our church grow together with one another? By holding fast to our head. That head is Jesus Christ. Jesus' position as the crown jewel of the universe has very practical ramifications for us. It's not a distant truth like, oh yeah, he's somewhere out there ruling in some, some very sterile environment. The fact that Jesus is Lord over all meets us in our everyday lives. He is sufficient for us. We don't need anyone or anything other than him to meet our spiritual needs. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the big picture that's, that's by design, okay? Because I want us to get a, a grasp of where we're going with this. 
in our time remaining, let's circle back to the beginning. And the text begins in verse 8 with a sober command. And the command is one word, beware. Watch out. Beware. Warnings have an important place in society. They signal that there is danger ahead and that we should be alert to that. And, and some warning signs are a little bit unusual, like this one. It says, if you can't read it, beware of invisible cows. I didn't make this up. This sign is found at the visitor center at Volcanoes National Park on the Big Island of Hawaii. Now, as you can probably guess, there's a story behind it. Most normal thinking people don't just post things about invisible animals. So why do they need it? Why do they need this sign? Well, one of the roads leading to the, the volcano is open range, and due to frequent fog, dark-colored cattle can become invisible to drivers until there's an accident. And the vehicle collides with one, and bovine do serious damage to Fords and Toyotas. Hence the warning of invisible cows. They're not really invisible, but to drivers they seem invisible. And the passage right in front of us is a giant warning sign in neon lights, if you will, keeping us away from certain spiritual danger. Well, what is the danger that we have to watch out for? And the danger is this, abandoning Christ for a different vision of flourishing. You say, wait a minute, that's a little bit wordy. Let's break that down. Every religious group and every worldview has to answer this question. How do humans flourish? In other words, how do people, how do societies gain satisfaction, grow spiritually, find meaning and purpose, and live with joy, hope, and peace. Our world is full of groups and teachings that promise these things, but they promise these things without Jesus. Now, some groups are easy to recognize, like false religions, because they have church buildings, and they have holy writings, and they say, this is what we believe, and they're, and they're really clear about it. But what all of those religions do is they they promote a different picture of how humans succeed and it doesn't include Christ. Some groups are very confusing like cults that use the Bible and that call themselves Christians and even use the same language that we do but they mean totally different things. And sometimes the danger to abandon Christ is so camouflaged, so steeped into our thinking, our cultural thinking, that, that it's like the fish not knowing that it's even wet. Things like secularism and moralism and therapeutic deism fall into this category. And those are, those are big words. And, and yet if I went into detail, we'll talk about some of them in a minute. There are thoughts that our culture talks about that fit into this, like the idea of my truth, that, that's part of these isms. And it's anti-Bible. It's against the scriptures. And, and these are very hard to discern. And yet the common denominator with each one of these groups or, or, or teachings is that they promote flourishing without Jesus. Which is like trying to explain how the earth rotates on its axis and has literal 24-hour days and, and experiences seasons without mentioning the sun at all. 
You can get some things right by description, but ultimately you're going to be missing the whole center of it all. And so Paul writes that any belief that has a vision, that has a teaching on human happiness, on human satisfaction, on spiritual growth, that excludes Christ will ultimately fail. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to bury our head in the sand and pretend like the the cartoon ostriches? No, Paul says that we're to beware, we're to watch out. Because those those dangers aren't just out there. It's not like in here there's just a, a wall of ideas that are only godly. Like you walk in and all of a sudden your mind is changed. You walk out of the doors and, oh, you're back to yourself. It doesn't work that way. Because the ideas of our world aren't just out there. Unbiblical thinking like this can seep in here, in the church, in us. We are not immune from the contagion of ungodly thinking that, that fills the air in which we breathe. When you go into space, astronauts have to use specially constructed suits to make sure they can breathe and, and that their bodies won't disintegrate. And, and what the Bible is for us is that air filter so that what we breathe is truth and we're not sucking in the sewage of our culture. Now Paul describes the danger in verse 8. And from this verse, we have four characteristics of this false teaching. And each of these characteristics, each of these traits are found in our world today. So as we work through the verse, I'll try to point out a current illustration, and then we'll talk about application. First, these teachings promise freedom, but actually lead to spiritual captivity. Paul begins by saying, beware lest anyone cheat you. The key word is cheat you. And this is the only time this specific word is used in the scripture. It means to gain control of by carrying off as plunder. That's why many modern translations render it, take you captive. Beware lest anyone take you captive. What Paul is doing is he's comparing people who embrace false teaching like this to the spoils of war. You see, these false teachers conquer with words of empty deceit and they take people as plunder. So so the question that comes up is, well, why would anyone follow that in the first place? Well, because they promise something good. They promise freedom. They promise enlightenment. They promise super knowledge. They promise things that we want. There's always bait to get you to swallow the hook. Because if they set, set out and said, we're promising captivity and misery, and if you join our group, there's no way on earth you can get out of it, no one would join. <laughs> but when they promise to be a part of a, in a, an elect spiritual group or a, a niche that, that no one else can know about and their secret knowledge, it, it kind of gets us interested. And we see this in many cults. They promise freedom and fulfillment, but they enslave their followers, and trying to get out is impossible. Some, like, like Jehovah's Witnesses, practice social shaming, where if you leave that, that cult, you, you're cut off from everyone and everything. Others, like Scientology, have a long and difficult process with tons of steps and hurdles that make it very hard to leave the church. Well, not only do these things promise freedom, but they appear to have a basis of truth. That's another bait on their hook. They appear to be truth-tellers. 
These people take you captive, Paul writes, through or by philosophy and empty deceit. These are the means by which you are taken captive. If you could label the hook that they're dangling or the carrot out there, that would be labeled philosophy and empty deceit. That's how they sweep you and I away. Now, philosophy we could get into. uh, We have to dabble in this for a second here. Philosophy is the study of basic ideas about truth and knowledge in the world around us. Ancient Greece was famous for its philosophies. Perhaps you've heard of cynicism or skepticism or Epicureanism or Stoicism, like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, these these philosophers. And Paul says here that these false teachers also have a philosophy. They have an explanation of how the world works, and they have an explanation of how you should follow them, but their philosophy is not truth, it's empty deceit, which misleads those who believe it. And to mislead, there has to be some element of truth to it. Because if there's not a shred of truth in it, no one's going to follow it. Let me give you a current example. Cults spin off of historic Christianity, but change key beliefs. Mormonism, for instance, claims to be part of Christianity, and they even use the same language we do. I've talked to Mormons a couple years ago, I was talking to a Mormon friend, and, he, and I said, yes, I'm excited to go to Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he said, amen, I'm excited to do that too. And I went, wait a minute, you're a Mormon. You're not supposed to believe that. Well, what's the trick? Is that they use the same words we do, but they redefine what they mean. When he says resurrection from the dead, he doesn't mean what we mean. They literally believe that God the Father has a body and physically produces children. Jesus is literally an offspring of God. Salvation is achieved by living righteously, which conveniently is connected to faithfulness to the Church of Latter-day Saints. And therefore, if you get to heaven, you get to propagate spirit children in your own planet. It gets a little bit goofy. But why are they so attractive? Because they're, they're, there's a basis, there's a, there's a mixing of truth there. And our world has hundreds of philosophies that contain some truth. But apart from Christ, these things will only be partial truth. Fullness of truth is found only in the Lord Jesus. Third, Paul says, these teachings are based in human authority. He describes this philosophy as according to the tradition of men. The source of teaching comes from human wisdom and human tradition because what tradition does is it strips away authority from God and places it in human hands. And this can happen a couple different ways. This can happen, obviously, when a person constructs their own religion. Joseph Smith, who formed Mormonism, we just talked about that a second ago, he claimed to have a vision where an angel named Moroni came to him to restore the pure gospel that had been lost. And so he went out and apparently under the influence of this angel, wrote the Book of Mormon, which contains the true teachings of the church. The the, the Mormon church is based on human authority. Islam does the same thing. Muhammad wrote the Quran. Ditto for Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy wrote Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. Do you see a pattern here? To form your own religion, it's actually not very difficult. you got to have one good idea, And then write a holy book and then tell people that you need to follow it. The problem is, if you write the holy book, it's founded on your wisdom. 
Yet there's a more subtle form that this takes, one that's, that's probably a little bit more deceptive today. And it's the modern day belief in personal autonomy. Personal autonomy is essentially a one person religion based on my own authority. That I can choose whatever I want to do and no one can tell me differently because it's my truth. Personalized truth is an oxymoron. The truth can't be customized or tailor-made. My truth is simply a person's appeal to their own authority in an attempt to get what they want, in an attempt to say, you can't tell me what to do. Yet, and this is where it gets a little closer to us, human tradition, human authority doesn't only reside in cults and false teachings. Tradition can take over true Christianity. It can invade, obscure, and then squeeze the life out of truth. If you remember what Jesus preached against many, many times in the Gospels, he criticized first century Judaism because of this very thing. You hold fast to the tradition of the elders and you do not hold fast to the word of God. You make the word of God inoperative by your holding fast to your traditions. The Roman Catholic Church is a modern day example of this. Over centuries, it's a slow tradition. Over centuries, the Catholic Church began to elevate church tradition and the office of the papacy to the same level of authority as Scripture. And it took literally centuries to confirm that. It was actually at the Council of Trent in the 1560s, 1500s, that the Catholic Church officially declared that church tradition was equal in authority of the Scriptures. Now, here's where it gets really personal. This tendency to sanctify human traditions can sneak into churches just like ours. We are all creatures of habit, are we not? We like comfort and routine instead of constant change. And so it's very easy for us to hold on to our traditions as our rock and our anchor. Because these traditions, these trappings give us Stability and a sense of normalcy, but they're not scripture. There is a difference between principle or truth on one hand and application of that truth on the other. There's a difference. The truth never changes, the application of it may. Tradition reverses those two. Tradition says that the applications, the form in which we do something is bedrock and cannot be changed and obscures the principle behind it. Let me give you an example. Does a church have to have a midweek prayer service to be a faithful Orthodox church? I hope not, because we don't have one. Many conservative churches have a tradition of gathering midweek to pray, and that's a wonderful thing. But you know when this practice started? In the late 1700s and really into the middle of the 1800s, that's when the midweek prayer service really got popular. Many rural churches wanted to gather as a church community and pray in fellowship, so they started a midweek service. Well, is the church commanded to meet on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. for an hour? Okay, that's a softball. (laughs) Is the church, on the other hand, commanded to pray in fellowship with one another? Absolutely, absolutely. 
the midweek prayer service is one specific application of that principle. And before even I got here, our church shifted away from a midweek prayer service to try to get more people to pray by gathering in homes. And this switch was based on the same principle. We need to pray together. We need to fellowship with one another. But it practiced a different application. We have to resist the temptation to associate godliness with the way that we've always done things. I do it. It must be right because I'm doing it. Anyone else think that? We have to resist that thinking. Traditions held in the right place can be helpful. They can be good. But when they take ultimate priority, when we're willing to die for them more than we're willing to die for Scripture, they become idolatry. And these teachings that Paul was condemning elevated human tradition and human authority above the Scriptures. The fourth thing is that these teachings find meaning apart from Christ. The next phrase in verse 8, according to the basic principles of the world, is difficult to interpret. Uh, It it could refer to several different things. And instead of doing a deep dive on these options, I want to distill out the common idea. The common issue with all of these interpretive options is that these teachings look for meaning in life apart from Christ. And that's why Paul hastens to add the final phrase, which identifies the root issue. These teachings are not according to Christ. They are according to the tradition of men. They are according to the basic principles of the world, but they are not according to Christ. And that's what's so important here. For all their claim of truth and wisdom, they don't follow Jesus. And and sometimes in the web of false teaching, it's hard to kind of make sense of what's going on. I don't know if you've had this experience like I've had, where you're talking to someone that's of a cult, like a Mormon or a JW, and you walk away with your head spinning because you're like, I know we're different, but like, you said the same thing I did. That's not right. But I, but I, don't, know how, I don't know how we're different now because you sound exactly like me. These groups present their teachings in an organized system that feels compelling and right, but the big issue is that they find meaning apart from Christ. That's where everything lives and dies. If you bring Jesus into the equation and you set Jesus before that false teaching, what they do with Jesus determines whether they are true or not. So run to Christ. He is the rock on which all truth is built. He is the light that comes to bring us clarity. False teachings lead us away from Christ. So what are we supposed to do? We must be on guard by practicing spiritual discernment. This will be the final application, and then we'll transition to the Lord's table. But discernment is, is fast becoming an antiquated thing. It's going out of vogue. Discernment, what's that? A lot of Christians don't even know what discernment is. And yet, it's an important spiritual tool. And if you don't know what the tool is or if you don't know what it's used for, you'll never be able to use it and pull it out of your tool bag. You probably know how to use a tape measure in a level. But I brought in a different tool that maybe a couple of you know. Uh, what is this tool? And if you know, don't shout it out. Don't give it away, okay? Uh, I'll put it up on here on the screen for you. Kind of got cut off. It's like this weird, lazy L shape. It looks like a golf club, but it's got a handle to it. What in the world is this? It's actually, a, I said don't yell it out. You turkey. <laughs> Mark's right. It's a bicycle chain cleaner. You put 
cleaning fluid in it, then it actually detaches. Ooh. Then you snap it on the chain, you run the chain through, and it cleans it. And it's usually filthy. It comes out with gunk. Good. I don't have anything on my hands. Well, is that a great hammer? <laughs> It'll break. But is it an effective chain cleaner? Absolutely. Here's the point. Discernment is an extremely effective tool when we use it correctly. Because this tool applies to so many different situations, let's take a couple minutes to get to know it better. What is discernment? Discernment is the ability to judge well, to weigh a choice, and make the best decision. Tim Challies wrote a book called The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. And here's his definition. Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Let's walk through this quickly. It's a skill. That means it's a developed ability to do something. Just like playing an instrument well requires hours and hours and hundreds of hours of practice time, discernment is a spiritual skill. You can grow in it. You can develop it. But how? It's by understanding God's word. And the best way to spot a counterfeit is to study the real thing. In fact, in, in the book, Tim Challies gives an illustration where he went to the Bank of Canada, because he lives in Canada. Uh, here, here, right, Pastor Jerry? Canada. And he went to the Bank of Canada, and he was trained in learning how to spot a counterfeit. And to do that, they actually gave him real money and taught him what to look for in the real thing. They even used the little phrase, touch, tilt, look at, look through. And so he learned what to look for, and at the end of his visit, he was handed a stack of bills, and he found that it was actually very easy to figure out which ones were fake because he knew what to look for. He knew what the truth really was. To grow in the skill of discernment, you have to know the real thing. That's why Paul writes in verses 6 and 7, walk in Jesus. Know him. And walking in Jesus means that we are applying God's word, applying the word to the situation. Because it's not just enough to know the truth. As you live the truth out, it becomes ingrained into your life, and therefore there's a safeguard in it. A godly lifestyle is a safeguard against deception. That's what Romans 12, 2 says, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Or as the NIV says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Test and approve. Test and approve. That's the practice of discernment. And, and discernment is, is for a specific purpose of separating error and truth and right and wrong. The hardest parts of discernment are cultural beliefs that don't really fit into a cult or religion because they require hard thinking and serious study. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 to test all things and then hold fast to what's good. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. I would also add this definition. Separating not only truth from error, but good from best. Because a very difficult part of discernment is when you have two non-sinful choices in front of you. There are two options that don't violate Scripture. So, so which one do you pick? You need discernment. We never want to sacrifice best on the altar of good. And discernment helps us to know what's okay and what is best. 
I've got some other things here with this that I'll probably put into this next week's newsletter uh, because we're running out of time. So you can look for that. In summary, let's conclude. Discernment means that you know what the truth is, you are on guard against deception, and you tenaciously hold to the truth. So to be spiritually discerning, you have to practice it. You have to be on guard. You have to be prepared and ready. But ultimately, we're missing one key ingredient. Spiritual discernment is a subset of godly wisdom. What does James 1 say about wisdom? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. That's the promise of discernment, that if you lack it, if you want to grow in it, God will grant it to you if you ask in faith. So let's bow together and ask him now to help us practice spiritual discernment. Father, we're sobered by this warning because there are ideas and thoughts in our culture that, that infiltrate us, that capture our, our minds, that tempt us, that are, are challenging to us. So give us a spirit of discernment. Help us to hold the truth and to hold it in love and that our love for Christ would be so strong that we cannot permit and tolerate any evil whatsoever. But give us kindness with one another and give us grace, we pray, to grow in our ability to practice discernment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.